right. Look at that. Jefferson uncovered. 20-15-10. Dances to the right to the five. Dives for the end zone. Touchdown! Yeah! That's big time. That's big time. Hey, you like that one? Hey, what I really like is the finish, man. Not a lot of guys would be able to make that six points. We're running our, you know, 14 week on or 12 duo. You just get us off the field with six points, man. Great job, oh, finish. Oh, Great job, finish. It's special to win at home week one, divisional opponent. Um, so it's, it's a great start. Congratulations on the win. Thank you so much. We're trying to come up with a bet on the yellow plaid shirt you had on yesterday after the game. Seaton? I'm going to go L.L. Bean. All right. Marv? I'm going to go Eddie Bauer. Eddie oh, Bauer. that's a good guess. I'm going to go REI. All right. And I wish I wish it was L.L. Bean or Eddie Bauer. Maybe that fits my brand a little more. But uh, my wife dresses me, by the way. <laughs> it happened to be Patagonia. So normally for home games, I like to pick out his outfit. We got some plaid, some stripes, some solids. We kind of go with the simple, um, people call it dad um, style, but I think it's very classic. Week one, I thought, this is the perfect shirt for September, for week one. It's got some fall colors in it. It's lightweight, short sleeve. It was a hot day, so I just went with it. I was kind of thinking for a while, how do I tell him that his shirt is all over the internet? Somebody ended up texting him one of the memes. I actually thought the comments were so funny. You know, when people say, boy, Kirk Cousins must be drowning in Cole's cash, it just had me laughing. You know, I'm pretty bad at fashion, but that's because I want all my decision energy going to football. Dad style, huh? That's a fashion trend I can get behind. I bet Kirk Cousins wears sweater vests when he goes to church. Um, that's a clip from a TV show on Netflix called Quarterback. They follow kind of the day-to-day -day grind of three quarterbacks in the National Football League, including this guy, Patrick Mahomes. He's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, my favorite team. Last year, he led the Chiefs to the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl. He was MVP of the Super Bowl, MVP of the whole National Football League. Have I mentioned I'm a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs? I really like Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, I think I've said that a couple times. Anyway, you're probably not surprised that there's a TV show Mahomes is in that I watch, Fanboy Scott. What might surprise you, by the end of the first episode, I was more interested in the Kirk Cousins storyline than I was the Patrick Mahomes storyline. We're in a message series here at Hope called Letters Penned by Paul. Just kind of a, a reminder how the New Testament is set up. First four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the Gospels that tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're followed by the book of Acts, which tells the story of the spread of the church all around the Roman Empire in those early decades after the resurrection of Jesus. The last book of the New Testament, last book of the Bible, is the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature. Everything between Acts and Revelation, it's letters. Um, biblical scholars refer to these as epistles because they want you to think they're smarter than you are. But they're just letters, many of them penned by Paul. And they're to churches or to church leaders trying to help people figure out this brand new thing that is the church, that is Christianity. How do we do this? 
So some of the letters in the New Testament are like the Patrick Mahomes of the New Testament. They're the MVPs. We read them a lot. Romans and 1 Corinthians and Philippians, and you may have verses memorized from those letters penned by Paul. Today, we're looking at the Kirk Cousins of the letters penned by Paul. A couple of books, Titus and Philemon, that are really easy to overlook. Easy to think at first glance, they don't have anything to offer. There's nothing really here that is going to be helpful or beneficial to me. But when you take a closer look, like we're going to do today, you start to see there's some really big ideas in these tiny books. In my Bible, uh, they take up three pages in my Bible. But some really big ideas for us, how does it look like, how does it work in our lives to follow after Jesus and to live together as a Christian community? So Titus is a leader of the church community on the island of Crete. Crete, if you know your Mediterranean geography, Crete is kind of a, a center, centrally located on the Mediterranean Sea between Greece and Africa, if you're going north and south, between Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and Rome, if you're going east and west. So it was a real strategic port uh, island, and Paul thought it would be a strategic island for the spread of the good news about Jesus Christ. So there's a church community there, and Paul sends Titus there to build up leaders in that church community, because the leaders currently, before Titus gets there, the church leaders are, they're leading in a way that leads to division. And so Paul wants to put an end to that. We need some new leaders. Uh, he begins the letter by reminding us Here's what the purpose is of this letter, yeah, but really all of Paul's ministry. This is Titus 1, verse 1. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. To teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. If you are new to Hope, you may not be aware that Hope is a multi-site church. We have six campuses in central Iowa, and part of the blessing of being a part of a, a multi-site church Every weekend, there are multiple preachers preaching sermons at our multiple campuses on the same biblical text, the same uh, ideas around how do we grow as followers of Jesus Christ, but you get some, you know, a multiple kind of perspective on this. So a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to Pastor Mike, the sermon that he preached at the West Des Moines campus a couple of weeks ago, and he spent some time digging into the idea of godliness. It shows up again here at the beginning of Titus, and so I, I just want to make sure we get this too. If Paul's purpose is to teach us how to live a godly life, let's be precise. What are we talking about when we talk about living a godly life? What are we talking about or thinking about when we see the word godliness show up in these letters that Paul writes? Because it shows up quite a bit. The Greek word that he uses is eusebia. It means to publicly honor and live for what God calls good. Uh, a lot of times we think of eusebia or godliness, we think of it as like pious behavior. But Paul makes a point here. He uses a word that begins not with our external behavior, but it begins with what's going on inside us. There's an inner response to what God is doing in us that leads to an external behavior, living a godly life. Paul's saying right up front, Eusebia, godliness, living a godly life, it matters. And then as you keep reading through Titus, he says, here's what godliness looks like if you're going to be a leader in the church. Here's what godliness looks like if you are a husband or a wife or a parent or a grandparent, what Eusebia, what godliness looks like in the home. And then in Titus 2, verse 10, he says, here's why it matters. 
Because the more we live lives where we publicly honor and live for what God calls good, the more we make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. So Eusebia, godliness, makes the teaching about God our Savior attractive to others. Uh, The Greek word that Paul uses here for attractive is cosmeo. We get our word cosmetics from this idea. How do you make Jesus attractive to others? In this TV series, Quarterback, on Netflix, they spend a lot of time focusing on the Eusebia, the godly life of Kirk Cousins, this quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, It's been well known, if you pay any attention at all, it's been well known that he is a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, long before this TV series ever came out, and they don't shy away from it in the show. Now, to be clear, just a warning in case you're like, hey, let's go watch this, it's rated TV mature. (laughs) And it's rated TV mature because it's about football, and there's a culture around football that uses a kind of language that we would never allow people to get away with in any other place, a kind of behavior that we would never allow people to behave this way any other place. But for some reason on the football field or on the stands as you are watching a football game, suddenly this language and behavior becomes okay. So just a reminder, we're at church and we're trying to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in any way. Perhaps if we're living lives marked by Eusebia, a godly life, publicly living for and honoring what God calls good, perhaps Christians should be very different on the playing field. So if you're a coach, if you are a player, if you are a parent or a grandparent, uh, we, one of our kids goes to Des Moines Christian School. And so, you know, a bunch of Christian parents in the stands. That's interesting. That's interesting. I strongly disagree, referee. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> You, you watch this show, and Kirk Cousins speaks differently than you would think most professional athletes might speak, and he behaves differently, and there's something attractive about it. And you might think, of course, you think it's attractive, Scott. You're a pastor. It's not just me. The show came out in July, and in July, football fans are like, it's never, ever going to be football season again. You just want football. So all of a sudden, here's a show about football. And everyone was talking about it. Sports Talk Radio was talking about it. And everyone, regardless of where they were as it comes to faith, everyone is saying the star of the show, what makes the show, you should watch the show because of Kirk Cousins. Something about the way he's living his life is drawing people in. Take a look. Turner, I've got your backpack. Do you need a sweatshirt or are you okay? I'm good. All right. We're going to get in the white car, okay, Turner? If we're on a Sunday-to-Sunday schedule, unlike most starting quarterbacks, I choose to take Tuesday entirely off. About eight years ago, uh, I made the decision that I'm going to truly rest for 24 hours a week during the season. I think at first, it threw the coaches off a little bit that, wait a minute, our our starting quarterback's not going to be in the building all day on Tuesday. We're not even going to see him. But it's just something that I felt was important. On Tuesday, I'll do anything that isn't football. There you go. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Say have a good morning. Our boys go to preschool for a few hours. So during that time, Kirk and I get our time together. We'll go for a walk with the dog. Good boy. He's the best dog ever. My love language happens to be quality time. So Tuesday, I don't know how I could do this life without Tuesday. (laughs) Seriously, during football season, because 
that is where I get quality time with Kirk. I can deal with every other crazy day, not talking to him or not seeing him or sharing him with a million people, but I know Tuesday's coming. That day just really resets our entire family. <laughs> In addition to spending time with me and our boys when he's at home, he also takes the time to sift through some fan mail that he gets. This is somebody who has been through uh, 20 months of chemotherapy treatment every three weeks. 17-year-old here, Tobin from Minnesota, two-time survivor of, of brain cancer. Someone actually in prison who's writing from prison. So it's something that, you know, just can be worth reading and hearing their perspective. Nothing worse than when you sign your autograph and then it smears. <laughs> so try to dry it off. You know, people who cheer us on, pray for us, they're asking for something, I think it's worth it to try to, you know, brighten their day with an autograph or a note back. Alexander, thanks for your kind note. We're lucky to have loyal fans like you. Don't hold it against your teacher that she's a Packers fan. We all have our faults. A lot you could talk about from that clip. What I want to focus on is what his wife, Julie, said kind of toward the beginning of that clip. She's talking about their life, and she said, life is good. Life is really great in a lot of ways, and life can be crazy. And we get pulled in all sorts of directions, particularly during the season. And so she looks forward to this day in the middle of the week. A couple of years ago, they got intentional about picking a day in the middle of the week where they're going to reconnect, reconnect relationally with one another. And she says, it's a day that just really resets our entire family. This is the way God has set up life, the rhythm of life. Six days, God creates the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, God rests. And then God says, I want you to rest on the seventh day also. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep it set apart for the sake of resetting your life and reconnecting with God and, and reconnecting with your church family, your faith community. It's so important. Every week we gather together and God does this work inside us. The other thing you've heard us talking about throughout the month of September, is we're encouraging you, we're inviting you to join a small group. We've got small groups that are going to be starting in October and happening through October, November, just seven weeks. We're asking you to just try, try meeting for seven weeks. I know life is busy and life is crazy, and this is an opportunity for you to reset in the middle of the week, or some of them are, are meeting on Sundays, whenever it might be, opportunity for you to reset, to be in a group of people that are honest about the challenges that we have in life, life as good as life is. There are challenges and a group of people that's going to encourage us and challenge us to live holy lives. What does it look like to live godly lives in our homes and at our schools and, and where we work and on the practice field and uh, wherever it might be? This is not something that we're going to be perfect at and, and do a perfect job at, but that's not the point. The point is to continually be taking these steps of growth, and not just for us, but ultimately for the sake of the people around us. That when people see that we've gotten intentional about making Jesus central in our life, and then they look at the way we're living our lives, they look at how our relationships are going, hopefully they might see there's something attractive about that. There's something attractive about Jesus. One of the things that makes Jesus unattractive is when Christians cannot get along, 
can't figure out how to get along. And that's a big part of the problem on the island of Crete that Paul is trying to address. He, he writes this letter to uh, Titus in part to remind Titus that the people on that island are living in such a way that they're making Jesus unattractive. They're causing people to turn away from Jesus. So how are the people on Crete living? They're living more like followers of the Greek god Zeus than they are as followers of Jesus. Crete, part of the Greco-Roman world, their worship was the Greek gods of the pantheon, in particular of the Greek god Zeus. If you read a whole lot, or not even a whole lot, about the uh, Greek mythology and you, you look at Zeus, he's supposed to be this mighty, uh, divine deity kind of god. He seems a little insecure to me. He's always using tricks and manipulation and deception to get his way, to, to make things go the way he wants them to go. That's how Zeus acts, and it becomes the culture on that island as they worship Zeus. It's an island full of deception. Paul writes about it in chapter 1, verse 10. There are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. If you are living a life that's based on lies... It should probably not surprise you if you end up having a lot of fights and quarrels and division in your relational world. Now, part of what's really scary about this verse, Paul's writing this verse not about the larger culture of the island of Crete. This is a description of the leadership of the church on this island. The church leaders are engaging in useless talk and, and deceiving others. They're living like they're worshiping Zeus rather than worshiping Jesus. And, and Paul makes a, uh, takes a lot of time throughout this letter to make a, a distinction. Here's the difference between the Zeus way of life and the Jesus way of life. Uh, again, early on in the chapter, in verse 2, he talks about this distinction. He's talking about the truth that is going to teach us to live godly lives. And then he says, the truth gives us confidence that we have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. Zeus lies, and everybody knows it. It's just who Zeus is, and Paul contrasts that. God does not lie. Zeus thinks lies and deceptions, this is going to lead to the good life. Jesus strongly disagrees. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says, and you can know the truth, and the truth can set you free. And, and as Paul goes on to outline kind of the qualifications for leadership in the church, the way of life he's describing is it's people who are living in a completely polar opposite way than what you read about when you read through Greek mythology. A big part of what Paul is doing in this letter is pointing out the ways in which people uh, on the island of Crete are living foolish lives. They're living foolish lives. Let me just ask, do you have any fools in your life? Anybody, as you're scrolling through your social media, you see people making posts and you're just like, hey, what a fool. <laughs> They're talking about, uh, maybe you're in mommy groups and you hear somebody talk about their parenting strategy in the back of your mind, you're like, fool. <laughs> My way is so much better than that way of parenting. Or who they vote for is foolish. One way you can tell if you have people in your life who are foolish, if they showed up for worship and sat down next to you in the worship center. Anybody in your life that you'd be like, whoo, I can't believe they showed up. One of the things Paul is really good at is being very direct and calling out foolishness. And at the same time, 
when we start to get arrogant, when we start to get puffed up with spiritual pride, Paul has a way of reminding us we're all in the same boat. This is Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We'll put it up on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. Paul does it in Titus. He does it in many of the letters that he writes. He reminds us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, that none of us are perfect, None of us are perfect, but a lot of us are perfectionists. One of the things I love about being a pastor in this church, I love that this church is filled with people who want to get better, people who want to grow, people who are interested in achievement and success and winning. It's great to pastor a church like that. I I see this driving you in so many areas of your life. For a lot of you, it's what gets you out of bed every morning. You want to grow, you want to succeed, you want to achieve. It it drives a lot of our students when it comes to academics, when it comes to extracurricular activities, they want to be successful. It drives you in home, in, in your relationships, in your family. How do we improve, how do we strengthen our marriage? How do we take it to the next level? How do we keep growing to become better and better parents all the time? There's a real blessing being a part of a community that wants to move in this direction, wants to get better and better all the time, wants to grow. But we have to be honest and acknowledge there's also a temptation in that. There can be a curse in that as well. And the curse is for many of us. For many of us, we are placing unrealistic expectations on ourselves, unrealistic expectations on the people closest to us to be perfect. Paul writes into this community on the island of Crete, And he says, you got to stop bowing down at the feet of the Greek god Zeus. You need to embrace the Jesus way of life. If Paul were writing to our little island here in central Iowa, I wonder if Paul would have a very similar message. we got to stop bowing down at the feet of a different Greek god, the Greek goddess Nike, goddess of victory, winning, achieving, being better than everybody else. We've got to stop bowing down at the feet of Nike and we've got to embrace the way of Jesus. Because here's what's happening. As, as we live in this culture and the culture is just moving us in this direction, it's all about better and better and better and more and more and more and winning and winning and winning and, and being better than others, putting others down if that helps lift us up. What this is doing is putting these unrealistic expectations on people. It's putting unrealistic expectations on our kids. And it's leading to a stress that's a major contributing factor to the mental health crisis we're all dealing with. Paul's really honest. He's really direct. The people on the island of Crete are living in foolish ways. And Paul would be honest and direct with us and point out the ways we are living foolish lives. And then he would invite us to a different way of life. He does it, Titus chapter 2, verse 12. We should live in this world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. Am I going to go the way of wisdom? Am I going to go the way of foolishness? Part of what it means to be a person of faith is to understand there's always going to be this tension. There's always going to be this back and forth, this tug of war. 
Am I going to go the way the uh, prevailing winds of this culture are pushing me, or am I going to go the way of the Holy Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit is blowing through my life? Am I going to go the foolish way or the wise way? And from cover to cover in the whole Holy Bible, this kind of language gets used. Uh, You go back to the Exodus, Moses leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, and when Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and before Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River into this land that God has promised them, Joshua gathers all the people together, and he tells them, you have a choice. You can choose, am I going to follow the Lord? Am I going to keep going the way that the Lord is inviting me to go, or am I going to turn from the Lord? Am I going to go my own way? And Joshua is clear. He says, this choice, you you have the freedom to make this choice. This choice is a choice between life and death. It's a choice between blessing and curses. And Joshua pleads with the people, oh, that you would choose life. Oh, that you would make a decision to follow after the way of the Lord, to commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the path that God lays out for you. We see a similar kind of differentiation happening at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is all about this contrast between the path of the godly or a a wise path, the path of the wicked, a foolish path. The Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction is how the first psalm ends. That sounds a lot like Jesus to me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is casting a vision for a countercultural revolution. A complete, here's the way everyone is living in this culture, here's what everyone believes in this culture, and then Jesus says, what if we change that? What if we transform the culture by living a completely different way, living life in the kingdom of God? And at the end of this countercultural teaching, Jesus gives a warning. There's this path, there's the prevailing wisdom in, in every culture. And it's wide and it's broad and it's easy and it seems like everybody's going that way. And Jesus' warning is, this is a path that leads to death and destruction. And then he contrasts that to the gateway to life. It's very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So which way am I going to go? Which path am I going to choose? And can I do anything to position myself to experience more and more of the life that God has for me? It's a tension. I like the way Kirk Cousins is wrestling with the tension. He is a professional athlete. It's all about being the best. It's all about getting better and better all the time. And he's like, I want to pursue that quest for excellence, but how do I do that without becoming a terrible, awful person who falls off the straight and narrow in the process? So they're looking back at at last season. They win the first game the Vikings do. Everyone's having fun with his plaid yellow short sleeve shirt that he wears in the press conference. And then in the next game, they get trounced by the Philadelphia Eagles. That's the team the Chiefs beat in the Super Bowl last year. Um, uh, Kirk Cousins plays terribly against the Eagles, makes all kinds of mistakes, imperfect. And in this episode, he sits down and talks with a sports psychologist. Take a look. Yeah, so State of the Union, I feel like, uh, you know, the Eagles game obviously was a disaster. So, um, you know, you got to make sure that you don't allow, you don't want to see the road game failure to spill over into a second one and then allow that to become a a thing. Mm -hmm. 
one poor decision can set you all the way back. Well, he'll regret that decision to make it. It was the heat of the battle, and I understand that. Oh, my goodness. But you can't, you can't play the position if you're not giving yourself the grace to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I just started meeting with Dr. Mack this season. Um, I had spoken with other psychologists in the past just as an exercise to be able to have a place to go vent. Honestly, I think at times you carry like a doubt mindset, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, like wondering what's coming around the next corner. Yeah. I think there's some power in just sort of talking about what I'm processing and what the thoughts are going through my head and maybe if those thoughts need to be changed or if they need to be leaned into more. You get hooked on to the, the negative things that are happening, and then they always do. Um, it, it crowds out the space for you to focus on the, the opportunities, unless you quickly uh, release the, the mistakes. When you do that, then you're in a better position to take advantage of what's in front of you and, and the opportunities that arise. It's not going to be easy. No, it never is. It never is. It was such a good play design and such a good play call to the throw to KJ that I missed. Man, when you miss ones like that, it just, it eats at you. I'm still on a quest to try to figure out how do I fulfill my potential as a player and a person while not driving myself crazy with the standard I'm asking. It can be a miserable place to live because you're never gonna be perfect. And when you set that as your standard, you kind of set yourself up for failure. How do I pursue my full potential as a human being while at the same time not driving myself crazy, living up to an unattainable standard? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. How's that going for you? This is the quest for every single one of us. How do we grow? How do we mature? How do we become the, the, live into the potential God has for each one of us, wh whatever that might, unique path might be. I want to be perfect. I'm not perfect. What am I going to do? Earlier in that clip, Cousin says, you can't play quarterback in the NFL if you don't give yourself the grace to make mistakes. And the heart of these two short letters penned by Paul, they're all about the power of grace. Paul begins by saying, I'm going to teach you the truth, the truth that's going to help you live a godly life. I'm going to teach you the truth that's going to give you the assurance, the confidence that you have eternal life. I'm going to call you a fool if you don't embrace this truth, the truth of Jesus. And then he spells out what the truth of Jesus is, the truth of the Christian faith. He does it in 80 beautiful, short, hope-filled, life-giving words. Sums up the whole Bible in these verses. Let's read this out loud together. It's kind of long, but read it with me. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. What's the Christian faith all about? What's the whole Holy Bible all about? Here it is in a nutshell. Notice who's doing the acting, who's doing the work here. 
It's all God. God saves us. God washes away our sin. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. God reconciles us. We've got a broken relationship with God because of our sin. God's the one who makes us right again. God gives us confidence in eternity. Why does God do these good things for us? Why does God give us these good gifts? Because of his mercy. Because of his grace. I want to be perfect. I know I'm not perfect. What am I going to do? The wisdom of the whole Holy Bible is to learn to trust in what God has done for you. Learn to trust in the power of grace. Again, this is one of the reasons why we're encouraging you to get into a small group. A a small group will be a great place for you to practice extending grace and receiving grace. This is the one guarantee I'll make about small groups. Your small group will not be perfect because you're in it. And so are other imperfect human beings. That's what makes it the perfect place to practice learning to trust in the power of God's grace. And that gets us to Philemon. We won't spend as much time on Philemon as we did Titus, in case you're thinking I'm going to balance this out. So Philemon is living in Colossa, uh, the city where the Colossians church is. Paul starts that church. Paul disciples a guy there by the name of Philemon, teaches him how to live a godly life. But Paul's bouncing around all over the Mediterranean Rim, starting churches here, starting churches there. Eventually, Paul gets arrested. He is imprisoned in Rome when he writes the letter of Philemon. Onesimus is Philemon's slave. And Onesimus escapes. He runs away. Good for Onesimus. But the problem is he gets caught, and then he gets thrown in prison in Rome with Paul. Paul ends up discipling Onesimus, and he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And then Paul, from prison, writes this letter to Philemon. Here's part part of what Paul writes. Here's verse 6. I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith, as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Philemon, you've experienced the power of God's grace in your life. God's been generous with you, Now I'm asking you to keep that grace, keep that generosity in circulation. Extend to the people in your life the grace and generosity that God has extended to you. And then Paul goes on to say, so I met Onesimus in prison, and what I want to do is send him back to you, but this time with a different title. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, welcome him as you would welcome me. Hope it's I think it's impossible for us to overstate the radical unity that flows into a culture when the culture is inundated with the power of God's grace. I want you to welcome this former slave like you would welcome me, the leader in the church who who led you to faith in Jesus Christ. Treat everybody the same. Treat everybody as equal. That's not the way it, it worked in Roman culture. About a hundred years before Jesus is crucified, there's another Roman slave. His name is Spartacus, and he leads a slave revolt, a slave rebellion. And part of this rebellion is they're wanting to point out just how awful and unjust and evil the practice of slavery is. They're trying to point out how awful and evil and corrupt a society has to be if the society's economic system is built on an entire class of people who are going to pay nothing or next to nothing, but then a small group of people can get rich off of their work. That's unjust. It's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. 
Spartacus didn't know about the kingdom of God. He just thought, this doesn't seem good, so let's fight back. Now, the people who were benefiting from keeping the system the way it was, a divided system, they didn't want to change things. They didn't want to treat people as equal. They liked that there was an inferior class of people that they could mistreat. They were benefiting from it, so they squashed Spartacus in the rebellion. And then, in order to communicate to the whole culture that our culture is going to work best when we maintain these strict lines of division, they crucify 6,000 of the slaves who were part of the revolt. 6,000. They line them up along the major trade route of the Roman Empire, the Appian Way. For 120 miles, about every 100 feet, they put up a cross and they nail a slave to it. 6,000 slaves. So that anytime anybody walks by, they get a visual reminder. Anytime a merchant who is doing business in the Roman Empire uh, walks past, they get this visual reminder that our world, our culture, our society only works if we maintain these clear lines of division. If we have people that we can view as inferior, people we can mistreat. That's 100 years before Jesus is crucified. Paul writes this letter about 25 years after Jesus is crucified. But the law of the land is the same. Uh, severe consequences for slaves who run away. Severe consequences for anyone who helps a runaway slave. You can be beaten, you can be imprisoned, you can be killed. That's the cultural norm into which Paul writes this letter. And Paul says, no more. God's grace cannot stand to be a part of a world where people are treated this way, where people are treated as less than or inferior. That God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, it's for all people. It's for everyone. It's for all time. And so... Paul challenges Philemon. I want you to go against the culture. I want you to go against the practices and behaviors that are typical, that are normal for everyone else around you, and I want you to act like you're part of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is not of this world. And through the living and active word of God, Paul's challenging us to do the same thing. What does it look like in our lives, in our relationships, in our schools, in our homes, in our church? What does it look like for us to live godly lives where we are publicly honoring what God calls good and when there are things that are corrupt and evil, we are willing to go against that for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of making Jesus attractive to the world around us, for the sake of the mission that God has given us. What would it look like for us to be people who really live and act and believe like Jesus is Lord? Because when Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. When Jesus is Lord, you can still pursue, you know, becoming your best, growth, getting better, succeeding, achieving, winning. But when Jesus is Lord and you fail and you will fail, and when Jesus is Lord and you fall and, and you will fall, when Jesus is Lord and you lose and you will lose, we learn to respond to every situation in our life with the wisdom of godliness. And that's all about the power of of grace. Vikings had a great year last year. Not as good as the Chiefs, but a really good year. Won 13 games. And then, playoff failure. They're upset in the first round, a team that everybody thought they were going to beat. Just so awful and frustrating and, you know, suck the air out of you kind of a loss. 
How is Kirk Cousins going to respond to this in a godly way? Take a look. The hardest part is that when you go to OTAs, you know, 13 wins this year is no bearing. You're back to nothing. It's hard. It's hard to build, 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 and then, you know, there's nothing to really build from there anymore. It's over. <sighs> Frustrating. Really, really frustrating. Oh, I forgot it's trash night. All righty. It's usually about this time when you start feeling all the pains from the game. You just walk around your house and you're like, ooh, that hurts. Turner, that was awesome. The fact that you let Cooper go to the game in your I place. That was so nice that, of you. Turner, that was so nice of you. Wow, so you stayed home and watched the game with Mimi? Yeah. Did you know if we won or lost? We won. No, we lost. Yeah, we lost 24-31. You want to go read with Dad? No, I want to. Let's go read we, some books. We got 24 and the other kids got 31. That's why we lost. Can we do that? Can we read some books? Let's do the book of uh, Y in Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Let's do that. That was a good one. Why do the Detroit Lions and the Dallas Cowboys always host a game on Thanksgiving? Why are some tennis players considered clay court specialists? Why does the NFL have so many rules against hitting quarterbacks? In the NFL, the quarterback is by far the most important player. An injury to the quarterback can sink a team's entire season. Did you know the season-ending knee injury that Tom Brady suffered in the first game of the 2008 season led to a ban on hitting quarterbacks below the knee? And Dad is forever grateful. Okay. You comfy? Mm -hmm. All right, you should sleep well tonight because you didn't get a great nap and it's 9 o'clock. All righty. Ready to sing and pray? On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, thanks for uh, today. Thanks for protecting Dad in his football game and through this football season. Um, thanks that Cooper was able to be there tonight and watch. And um, thanks for Mommy and for Turner, for the great family we have. And God, we uh, continue to just give the days ahead to you and trust you for uh, what's up ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, buddy, you good? Okay, sleep well, love you. What if we stopped pursuing perfection? And what if we learned to embrace the God who pursues us? And what if, instead of being perfect, our hope, our goal, our prayer was to be godly? I've heard better prayers than that. But that was a pretty godly prayer. I've heard better singing than that. But that was pretty godly. I mean, think about it. Devastating loss. You're just crushed and you get home, it's trash day. <laughs> that's life. And that's the life that God wants to enter for you and to me, to help us every moment, 
every detail, every decision of this incredible, challenging, disappointing, beautiful life. We have a God who's with us in every moment, who wants the best for us in every moment and for all eternity. Let's stand. Let's sing to our great God.